Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times. And it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. When Boris Johnson won the last election, it was clear how he wanted his government to be known. We are going to unite and level up. Unite and level up. But rather than levelling up, the pandemic has hit household incomes across the country. With rising unemployment, coupled with record levels of national debt, the government faces some difficult choices. Will it help everyone in need? Or will it follow the path of previous Conservative governments when it comes to welfare. You have, under Margaret Thatcher, someone prepared to make the argument that actually welfare benefits don't really help anybody and certainly shouldn't be seen as any kind of permanent solution to, to people's um, circumstances. Despite spending record sums on the introduction of the furlough scheme and an extension to universal credit, rows over free school meals have exposed the government to a barrage of criticism for being out of touch and not wanting to help those who are most in need. Tory MPs and ministers have been hit with the accusation that they are unfeeling, they don't care, and it plays into people's really deeply held preconceptions about the Tories. So, as the Chancellor prepares to unveil his budget next month, which side of the party will he listen to? Should they be distancing themselves from the image of the nasty party, the party of austerity, or should they be trying to control spending? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, universal credit, free school meals, and a history of Tory welfare. Two weeks ago, the government lost a vote. A non-binding vote, but they lost it by a remarkable margin. The eyes to the right, 278. The nose to the left, zero. So the eyes have it, the eyes have it. Unlock. Significantly, half a dozen Tory MPs had rebelled, voting with Labour to stop universal credit and working tax credit being reduced again in April. As the pandemic set in and lockdowns choked the economy, people were struggling to make ends meet. The government increased universal credit by £20 a week to provide 
what many have described as a lifeline for those in most need. But that increase is set to come to an end in April. Will the Chancellor choose to extend it when he announces his budget next month? And what about free school meals? After a national campaign shamed the government into a U-turn on the issue, how much longer will they agree to fund free school meals for children who are locked down at home? It's an issue over which the party seems to be split. After years of austerity and cuts, how will the modern Conservative Party choose to define itself? In recent weeks, there's been increasing pressure on the government to say what it will do with the uplift in universal credit, which was basically an increase in the amount of universal credit paid out that the Chancellor started right at the beginning of the pandemic. Esther Webber covers all things Westminster for Red Box, the Times' insider guide to politics. Recently, that's involved a number of discussions about universal credit, the scheme introduced to replace a spectrum of welfare benefits by rolling them up together in a single monthly payment. And he said back then that it would go on for a year. So obviously that is coming to an end in a matter of weeks. With regard to universal credit, we put in place at the beginning of this pandemic a temporary uplift to universal credit, uh, which lasts all the way through to the end of this year. And of course, future tax and welfare decisions are, are rightly uh, decisions that will be made at the budget. Lots of people are saying, well, it's not good enough to kind of let it expire and just see what happens, or even to wait for the March budget. They're saying a decision needs to be taken sooner to give people a bit more certainty about what's going to happen next. We've strengthened our existing safety net with increases to universal credit, the local housing allowance and statutory sick pay. In April, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, introduced the uplift of £20 a week to universal credit to help those affected by a lack of work due to the pandemic. But it was only ever supposed to be temporary, and the extension runs out at the end of March. There's been a massive rise in the number of people claiming universal credit. And so the idea behind the uplift was to alleviate some of the extra hardship that people were going to face as a result of the changing world of work and the fact that lots of places were going out of business or having to reduce the number of staff. And the difficulty, I suppose, is that come this March, very little of that has changed. This is the big problem facing the government and particularly the Treasury because there was some opening up of businesses and retail more over the summer but now we're in full lockdown again and some businesses that may have maybe recovered a little have either lost business or been forced to shut and so the picture is pretty bleak. The most recent figures from the Office of National Statistics show unemployment rising with more than 800,000 people 
being wiped off company payrolls in the period between February and December last year. So how should the government respond? Clearly, an emergency response was thought to be justified this time last year. But they haven't really answered the question yet of how they see that going forward over the weeks and months, as we know the economy will continue to be severely affected. That's proving to be quite difficult for a number of Conservative MPs. You know, this, the, the difficulty of knowing that nothing has changed, a lot of their constituents will still be suffering. Tell me about the problems within the party at the moment and, and the MPs who've been rebelling. So this question of what to do next has exposed some dividing lines within the Conservative Party and also kind of highlighted the the nature of the modern Conservative Party. So you have what you might call more traditionalist Tories who are very worried about the level of government debt and the level of spending that has been necessitated by the crisis and they want to know how that's going to be addressed, where the Chancellor is going to make cutbacks or find more money. And that comes up against not an altogether new impulse but definitely an increasing one in the Conservative Party which is more comfortable with a larger state And many of these MPs will represent uh, deprived communities. In recent weeks, those tensions within the party have been laid bare in a succession of awkward media interviews as MPs and ministers have been quizzed about their position on universal credit and free school meals. This was the health secretary, Matt Hancock, being asked on Good Morning Britain if he regrets his previous position on free school meals before campaigning by the footballer Marcus Rashford forced a government U-turn. Do you regret voting against it? Is it yes or no? Well, well, as I say, I'm really glad that it's happening But do you regret it? Do you regret voting against it? Well, I'll put it this way. In the first lockdown, uh, we took this action and now, as you say, we're in Health a Secretary, second you only had to say yes lockdown. or no, whether you regret it. You either regret it or you don't. Well, I, I, I'm really glad that the situation's been resolved. You, so you regret, you regret voting against it? I, I'm really glad it's been resolved and we've sorted it out. The prominence of these social justice and benefit questions are a problem for the Conservative Party and for government, for sure, because they are such emotive questions and they go to the heart of what you think government and politics is for, that a lot of Tory MPs and ministers have been hit with the accusation that because they are resisting indefinite extension of free school meals and because they're resisting an immediate decision on universal credit that somehow they are unfeeling, they don't care 
and it plays into people's really deeply held preconceptions about the Tories and they are accused of hating the poor and this kind of thing and it becomes a real toxic issue for them. Where do these deeply held preconceptions come from? Why are the Tories accused of hating the poor and opposing benefits? How did they get their image, as Theresa May put it, of being the nasty party? Buckle up as we take you through a potted history. My name is Tim Bale and I'm Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London and I specialise in party politics and in particular the politics of the Conservative Party. And Tim, some of the recent political rows around universal credit have brought up this sort of image of the Tory party which seems to be lurking in the background for a lot of recent history. Where does that view that being on benefits should be an unpleasant experience, where does that come from? Well, actually, it's got a really long history. Some people would even date it back to Elizabethan times. I think you can, though, definitely say that it's the consequence of the 1834 poor law. And that introduced something called the less eligibility principle. And that was namely that you had to ensure that those on welfare were, if you like, worse off than those who weren't. So as to act as a deterrent to people claiming and more generally as a deterrent supposedly to laziness. And has there always been this view that it is laziness that stops people from from doing well? Well, I think it has been quite a strong belief, actually, in Britain, not just in the Conservative Party, that people who claim welfare, who claim benefits, shouldn't get something for nothing, if you like, and certainly shouldn't be better off than those who work hard in order to keep themselves off uh, the welfare rolls. But historically, the Conservative Party wasn't always sceptical about welfare. Disraeli the 19th century Tory Prime Minister had a more paternalistic view of the duties of government. Disraeli represents this so-called one-nation strain in the Conservative Party, this feeling that those at the top owe a duty to, to those at the bottom, feeling that the two classes, as it was then, shouldn't ever get too far away from each other partly simply out of moral obligation and partly out of self-interest um, because, of course, there was a big concern in Victorian times about the possibility of a kind of revolution on the part of disenfranchised and alienated and often immiserated working-class people. That contrasts, however, with the kind of Manchester liberalism you saw originally in the, in the Liberal Party in the 19th century, which then gets transferred over into the Conservative Party at the beginning of the 20th century. Manchester to liberalism. Explain that. Well, that's very much the kind of attitude to poverty described by Dickens in Hard Times and ascribed to Thomas Gradgrind, the factory uh, owner, uh, who, who really regards the poor as feckless, as people who will always take advantage uh, of their betters unless you know they are disciplined. And uh, that, I think, is also about the uh, exchequer itself. It's about not spending too much of the nation's money on the ground that it will go towards, if you like, unproductive uses rather than go towards investment in the economy that will pay off in terms of jobs and growth. And Margaret Thatcher is in some ways the person who in the Conservative Party 
moves away from the more kind of Disraeli and one nation strain of conservatism that you see in the immediate post-war period under particularly Macmillan, for example, and even to some extent Edward Heath, and moves the Conservative Party to a rather kind of harsher 19th century, if you like, view of, of poverty and welfare. So talk me through the Thatcher years and the attitude during that period to welfare and benefits. Well, certainly under Margaret Thatcher, and it continued actually under John Major, there was a determined effort to cut spending on welfare, or at least the growth of spending, which during the early to the mid-1980s ballooned as unemployment rose to well over four million. How very pleasant it would be, how very popular to say, spend more on this, expand more on that. And of course, we all have our favourite causes. I know I do. But someone has to add up the figures. Part of that was achieved by breaking the link between earnings and benefits. And part of it was done by tightening eligibility for those benefits wherever possible. They certainly had an effect of making the welfare system rather less generous to those who were claiming and making generally their lives more unpleasant, if you like. Whether that actually did lead to people coming off benefits and going into work, I think, is another matter. That is disputed. Many people would say, actually, that carrots are better than sticks when it comes to uh, getting people off welfare into work. Talk me through how, how some of the MPs at the time would talk about poverty and benefits. I think you have, under Margaret Thatcher, someone right at the top prepared to make the argument that actually welfare benefits don't really help anybody. The mother figure can so easily end up not suckering but suffocating. And certainly shouldn't be seen as any kind of permanent solution to, to people's um, circumstances. And then energy is sapped, then initiative is stifled, and then enterprise is destroyed. You also have some MPs, as you have now, who occasionally will give voice to some very, if you like, hard-hearted attitudes to people in poverty who see it very much as their role to remind people that it is up to them, ultimately, to feed themselves and, and feed their families. And it shouldn't be for them to rely on the taxpayer to do it. You also have famous incidences like, for example, I've got a little list of benefit offenders who I'll soon be rooting out and who never would be missed. They never would be missed. Peter Lilly giving uh, a speech to the Conservative Party conference, talking about a list he's got in a kind of pastiche of a Gilbert and Sullivan song. Peter Lilly launched his provocative Gilbert and Sullivan tribute at the 1992 Conservative Party conference when he was Secretary of State at the Department of Social Security. He ran through an operatic list of the people he said he wanted to target. Young ladies who get pregnant just to jump the housing queue and dads who won't support the kids of the ladies they have kissed. <laughs> and I haven't even mentioned all those sponging socialists I've got them on my list, and there's none of them be missed. There's none of them be missed. 
sometimes you get almost kind of pantomime attitudes towards the bore from some Conservative MPs. That's something I'm sure that makes leaders of the Conservative Party and those around them cringe. But nevertheless, it does reflect the attitudes that do exist within the Conservative Party. And as I say, very importantly, it reflects attitudes that exist throughout the British population. We are not, despite our image of ourselves, the most generous when it comes to a state-funded system of welfare. We like to think of ourselves as charitable people, and indeed the success of things like Children in Need are testimony to that. But we also do worry about the amount of money going to welfare, and we worry about the effect of welfare payments on the enthusiasm of people for their own efforts in, in pulling themselves up and going to work. When David Cameron became leader, he wanted to modernise the Conservatives, giving the party a softer image, moving it away from the Thatcher years. But despite being in a coalition with the Liberal Democrats, when Cameron became Prime Minister in 2010, austerity, the need for cuts, and a lurking scepticism about the benefits of welfare soon sent the party on a very different course. There is still always this feeling that if you treat people too generously, you will encourage them to claim welfare instead of going to work. I have in mind the person probably watching your show who is leaving now for work, going to work all day, and as they walk out their door, maybe they look across at the neighbour's house, and the blinds are down, and that family is living off benefits. I have already acted to reduce benefits for those families. George Osborne, in particular, I think, was responsible for hammering home the attitude that there is a division between people, as he put it, sleeping off a life on benefits with the curtains closed while other people were getting up early and going to work. Those very divisive stereotypes of uh, them, these welfare scroungers, and us, the good people who are paying taxes to keep them off the breadline. That's a very, very powerful image, which he, to some extent, by his rhetoric, and some would say by his policies, actually helped to reinforce. If you're one of those families, if you're just managing, I want to address you directly. I know you're working around the clock. I know you're doing your best. And I know that sometimes life can be a struggle. The government I lead will be driven not by the interests of the privileged few, but by yours. Was there an attempt to change some of that under Theresa May? She'd obviously talked about not wanting to be seen as the nasty party at party conference long before she was leader. She seemed to want to soften the image. And suddenly you got this phrase about the just about managing, the jams. Was that a different perception of, of the poor? Theresa May, in talking about burning injustices and talking about just about managing, was to some extent talking not so much about the very poor, those who are on the most welfare benefits, if you like, but those who were perhaps just outside the benefit system, who were working on very low um, wages. One of the things that you would have to say in George Osborne's defence, actually, and in Theresa May's defence, is that they have, by raising the minimum wage, actually done a fair amount for those people. 
They would also point, obviously, to increases in the income tax threshold, although actually research reveals that that doesn't help people who are on the edge, as it were, as much as it's often claimed. But certainly their their raising of the minimum wage and their creation, as George Osborne put it, of the living wage has made a difference. On the other hand, and it is always one of these, you know, giving with one hand and taking away with the other, they have made it rather more difficult in many cases to claim in-work benefits, and that hasn't helped people. How did conservative thinking on welfare shape the greatest change in benefits in years with the introduction of universal credit? We'll have more in just a moment. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2016, the conservatives shook up the welfare system with the introduction of universal credit. Six different benefits, working tax credits, child tax credits, housing benefit, income support, employment allowance and job seekers allowance are claimed for and paid separately. They will all be rolled into one universal credit, paid once a month directly into your bank account. 
Ian Duncan Smith becomes uh, the person responsible in the Cameron government for welfare in 2010. And he decides that he wants to introduce something called universal credit. At the moment, you know, the benefits are all taken away at different rates. Some are net, some are gross. You'd have to be a pretty brilliant mathematician to figure out whether you're better off or worse off. So this will be simple to understand and will ensure you're always better off in work, no matter what the hours are you work. On the plus side for claimants, universal credit brings together a whole series of benefits, which previously people had had to claim separately. And there was a kind of alphabet soup, if you like, of benefits. And, and that did decrease uptake. There was what you might almost call like a moral aspect to it. That's Times Red Box reporter Esther Weber again. The idea being that if one payment was paid to people in a similar way to a salary at the end of the month, that that would kind of instill some idea of managing money better. If you put a positive slant on it, I suppose... It would be about being trusted to manage larger sums of money. But lots of people have seen that as being essentially a paternalistic, regressive approach that says people can't be trusted with their money on a more regular basis. And tell me, there were lots of controversy around the launch too and about how it affected people. What seemed to go wrong? One of the huge initial problems with universal credit was a five-week wait for payment at the beginning after the initial assessment and that puts a lot of people into debt. That situation for many people really spiralled so they will be potentially in situations where they couldn't pay their rent, where they face being evicted, where they couldn't properly buy everything they needed for their families. And that was a really, really severe problem ended up having to change. And it now is paid after a week in most cases. But that was, I think, the predominant thing that really overshadowed the launch. A lot of people ended up being in debt on universal credit and using food banks as well. How is it viewed now? Has it sort of come through those initial problems and is it working? There are definitely still problems with universal credit and we hear a lot about them. The monthly payment is still quite controversial. Part of the thing which has to be remembered about universal credit is it's not all people who are out of work. It is a means-tested benefit, so it's about how much income you're receiving and it is possible, very possible, for people to be working low-paid jobs and still qualify. Where do you think the Tory party's thinking is now on welfare benefits? I think it's very much up for debate at the moment. So a decision will have to be taken on what's happening next with universal credit. Mm. And it seems hard to imagine that it could be withdrawn while we're still in the teeth of this crisis. Although whether they find a way of 
time limiting it again or tapering it is something that's being discussed. It's very much a live issue and I guess what we haven't spoken about so much is the counter-argument and the pressure coming the other way which is really severe in the Treasury and in fact a lot of it comes from the Chancellor himself who I think does see himself as more of a traditional Conservative and it's important to him to keep government down and that is something he really has a consistent eye on and the Treasury has an eye on. The thing we've heard again and again through this crisis is what they want to resist is introducing temporary fixes and temporary types of help which then become permanent and they are not able to withdraw and become a permanent feature of government spending. So that's the kind of battle that they're fighting at the moment. And is there something sort of philosophical in all of this? Because certainly since the Thatcher years, we've always sort of heard the the Conservative Party talking about the working class is striving. That's sort of what they want to encourage, a meritocratic ideal and sort of a sense that benefits somehow don't help that. I think there is a link between the idea of a meritocracy and our rather hard-hearted attitudes to poverty. That's Tim Bale again. I think there is a belief, particularly among the successful, actually, that they have been successful largely through their own efforts rather than through, for example, their family background or just pure chance. And therefore, the flip side of that is a tendency to see those who aren't successful as somehow deficient or as having made bad choices or lacking talent or lacking effort. But I think coronavirus has really changed the picture because of everything that MPs are seeing. And I think maybe something we haven't mentioned enough is that MPs are, they deal with casework. They are in their constituencies trying to sort out problems for people who live there, regardless of who they voted for. They've seen an enormous explosion in the number of people who are in quite a bad situation needing their help. And I think that has changed things. It's created, well, A, people's situation is worse, and B, there's more of an awareness of that within all parties, but definitely including the Tory party. And I think that has either changed or solidified how some of them look at it. Will there be a point when we come to think of the Conservative Party as the party that looks after people? During the 90s and early 2000s, they sort of had the reputation for being the nasty party. Will they have an image change, do you think? They could make a claim during this pandemic to have you know, done a reasonable job of looking after people. And actually, universal credit for all its problems has helped and will continue to help a lot of people. But while the Conservative Party worries as it does about the amount of money that it is spending, 
And while it has in its head this concern that giving people too much will cause them not to make efforts on their own part to pull themselves out of poverty, I think it will be quite difficult to change attitudes completely. A lot will depend on what happens over the next year and how the current support systems develop and whether they are extended or scaled back. The other thing we haven't really touched on is that something that is still missing from that debate is social care and a plan for social care. And I don't think the party will really be seen as having changed its image fully in that way if it doesn't address that problem too. I think there's a way to go. The debate has massively moved on from austerity and the agenda of the coalition years and that's not really how they're seen, certainly within politics anymore although I think probably people outside have a more varied view but they haven't turned it around yet You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me Manveen Rana and my guests Times Red Box reporter Esther Weber and Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London Tim Bale You can read more of Esther's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print, or by signing up to the Red Box email. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you have time, please do leave us a review. And if you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for stories that you'd like us to look into, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, ex-Special Forces soldier and best-selling novelist Andy McNabb talks candidly about growing up with his adopted family, his time in juvenile detention, and how he finally found his home in the British Army. You're responsible for yourself, whether you're a six-year-old or whether you're a 96-year-old, you're responsible for yourself. So, suck it all up and just get out there. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Andy McNabb in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from the Times and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.